But what we have now is an amazing infrastructure that's highly cash flow positive, highly profitable, and has very significant growth potential. You're listening to episode 283 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. At the November Broadband Communities Economic Development Conference in Atlanta, Christopher interviewed Stephen Barraclough from Burlington Telecom in Burlington, Vermont. Stephen has been instrumental in reshaping BT as it's weathered stormy times over the past few years. Christopher interviewed Stephen prior to the final decision on the fate of BT. At a November 27 city council meeting, Burlington's local leadership voted to sell the network to Schur's Communications and ZRF Partners. Learn more about what happened and is happening in Burlington by checking out our coverage on muninetworks.org. Stephen and Chris, in this interview, talk more about lessons learned in how to pick up a network that's seen difficulties. After a prior mayor's administration mismanaged BT and kept difficulties hidden from the city council, Burlington had to overcome trust issues and find a way to move forward. Now here's Christopher with Stephen Barraclough from Burlington Telecom. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm in Atlanta today for the Broadband Communities Conference, uh, the Economic Development Series. And we're doing a live interview with Stephen Barraclaw, the General Manager of Burlington Telecom for the past many years. Welcome to the show. Chris, good to be with you. So, Stephen, um, for people who aren't familiar, Burlington Telecom uh, was uh, one of the earlier municipal networks, uh, fell upon hard times, and uh, ultimately ended up uh, running up a debt. There's a um, there's sort of a um, conflict in Burlington as to what went wrong. We're not really going to focus on that today. We're going to talk about you came in in a time when Burlington Telecom was very distressed. Um, it was uh, not really financially viable, it seemed like. What was happening in that time, 2012-ish, I think? Uh, it was actually March 2010, and okay. um, the Blue Ribbon Commission that the city had appointed to look at the problems that BT had gotten itself into had just issued reports which basically said that there was something here to save um, and that attempts should be made to save it, but it would probably need to be sold. I was bought in, and, and really the first things I was told is, you know, there's no money to borrow. Um, cash flow was running six figures positive a month, and it's either figure out how to to get it to break even or positive or lock the doors and turn the lights off behind you. Um, so the first thing, there are a number of phases in BT. One was to stabilize things and actually get positive cash flow. Luckily, we had a, a number of things we were able to do in terms of reducing costs and a couple of big things we'd found where uh, we'd been overcharged for things that we were able to get uh, to claim back. So that provided cash in the early days. We had to take a lot of cost out of the business, which unfortunately meant we had to lose a number of people. But there were quite a few opportunities to basically start to reduce the level of cost in the business. And a, a big help at that time were HBC, Hiawatha Broadband Communications, um, who have been one of the entities that the city, the Blue Ribbon Commission, had bought in to provide an evaluation of BT. It was clear to me when I first became involved that they were listening to HBC, and in particular Gary Evans more than others, 
uh, one of the first things I had to do was to put together a financial plan for BT and knowing that the first thing they would do with the financial plan that I produce would be to give it to Gary Evans and HBC and say, what do you think about this? Then uh, I preempted them and involved Gary and his then chief financial officer in actually helping me put the plan together. And they actually came to Burlington on several occasions while we worked through the situation and, and actually became part of the plan authorship rather than the plan reviewers. And and that was a, the start of a long and ongoing relationship with HBC. Right. Uh, HBC out of southeastern Minnesota, it just so happens that me being in Minnesota, I knew of them. I had great respect for Gary Evans, who has since retired, still doing interesting things. But he spent so much time in Burlington, I was starting to wonder if he was going to buy property out there. Maybe he even did. <laughs> no, he rented property out there. And, uh, and yes, there was a period where he'd spend one or two maybe three or four days a month there for one or two years. Uh, uh, and he remains a great friend today. We speak every few weeks, and uh, and he's been instrumental in shaping my views on BT and, and really helping BT to come through a very difficult situation. Right. One of the things that I think is interesting is that individuals can matter a great deal, and, and Gary is someone who can, can do that. Now, you wanted to make sure you weren't taking all the, the credit for turning around Burlington Telecom. You said that's more of a, a team effort. It's always a team effort when you come to something so fundamental as this on multiple levels. I mean, one, the people on the ground who, who were at BT who had to face some meaningful changes in the work they did and how they did it as we needed to become leaner and more nimble and more efficient at what we did. So major challenges there, whole other set of challenges in dealing with Citibank and the litigation. Uh, we owed them $33.5 million. They eventually settled for $10.5 million. A lot of work and effort, including the current mayor of Burlington and a whole raft of, of other people involved in that major milestone. The current team who are there at the moment, who probably about half the workforce is, remains from the original days, the other half is new. Uh, people there have worked incredibly hard over the last several years and now have have gone from something that people regarded as toxic uh, to having real pride and passion in what they do. And if there's anything that's satisfying out of this journey, which I've absolutely loved, it's the fact that we have this really neat local business uh, that is now highly cash flow positive, but with a team who... It's not a job. It, there's a huge pride and passion and a belief that they're making a difference. Well, I want to talk about how you got there. And as we're talking, the, the future status of Burlington Telecom has not been resolved, but people who are listening already know it because it's been inserted into the beginning of the show. So that's why we're not talking about that kind of process uh, of, of where it is today um, in terms of ownership status. But um, to give people a sense, how many customers did you have then when you took it over versus how many you have today? We had well over 4,000 when I took it over in early 2010. But we were getting weekly, sometimes daily, bad press articles. We were getting threats of litigation uh, from Citibank and uh, and multiple audits from different entities. 
if I could just jump in, I remember clearly, I forget the gentleman's name. He was a reporter for the Burlington Free Press, and it seemed like his job was solely to churn out articles about how bad Burlington Telecom was at one point. Uh, It certainly felt like that at the time. It felt like no matter what you did, where you turned, you were just waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next bad article to come out. And, And one of the consequences of that is it started really spooking some of the our residential subscribers. And so for the first couple of years, we actually kept losing subscribers. So our subscribers went down to below 4,000. And for me, the concerning part was, could I cut costs quick, fast enough to enable us still to remain in business? Uh, and the reason they were leaving us was, you know, mainly residential, very few commercial subscribers left us, but they're concerned that one day they get home and there was no service. We just had to close the doors, something that was never going to happen because the Vermont Public Service Board wouldn't have allowed that to have happened. There'd have been an orderly wind-down of BT's operations. But nevertheless, um, that happened, uh, and we focused really on cutting costs and then looking at the perception of BT, and it was clear that not only were we spending too much money on many things, um, we also had a customer service um, problem as well, and the customer service problem driven by multiple things. One, we were a business in crisis, so people at BT were nervous. Two, we had you know, some early-stage equipment here. We were one of the first builds, and uh, as you'll know, a the way one of these operations works isn't like you buy a Ford car or you buy a Chrysler. You buy a Ford engine, a Chrysler gearbox, a Subaru windscreen wipers. It's all different things that come together. And with our equipment aging, then some of it was starting to be less reliable than it needed to be. And every time you tried to change something, then that often caused unintended consequences somewhere else. So our platform was not as stable as we needed it to be, but we had no money to do anything about it. Just to jump ahead, how many subscribers do you have today? Uh, we have 7,300 subscribers today and and growing in double digits every year for the past several years. I feel like there's almost a, a singularity there because everything you've described is several years of things getting worse and somehow you turned the corner. To what do you credit Burlington Telecom turning around? I think there are two or three milestone events. One, in early 2011, late 2011, early 12, we stood back and looked at what are we? What are we trying to do here? Are we a failed municipal local triple play builder? Are we something more? Because uh, we felt like a failed municipal. And then two... What can we do operationally, given what we have to work with, that could enable us to start to do something positive rather than just react to negative? And so we looked at our position versus the competition uh, in the market, and we said, how, how do we differentiate ourselves? Can we differentiate ourselves against this huge giant? And, uh, and again, listening to HBC and just natural inclinations it was pretty obvious we had something on the internet that could be, and bandwidth that could be pretty special, but our equipment limited to 20, as to 25 megs symmetrical at the time. Uh, and clearly customer service was a problem. And uh, 
I've got a long history of working with businesses that have differentiated themselves through customer service. So that became an obvious area for me. Local business, poor customer service doesn't work. So focus, focus, focus on customer service and then focus on trying to upgrade our equipment so that we could differentiate our offering in the marketplace. When you talk about customer service, does that mean giving a pep talk to the CSR, the customer service representatives? Does it mean um, getting rid of certain people and hiring new people? What do you do? It's all of that and more. So we had to reorganize the business three times, I think, because unfortunately some of the people that we had simply didn't have the right skills for how we needed to operate going forward. And Whereas we talk about customer service, I believe customer service to be effective has to be part of the DNA of a business. It's not something you can talk about. It's not something you just teach. It's something that's inherent in you and you believe and it's a reason for your being or it never really works. Right. It's not an act. It comes from it comes from, it comes your, from within. Right. That was quite a long a long term process, but it's something that now is part of BT's uh, DNA and The minute we began focusing on customer service, we actually started to see results quite quickly in in that there were some things that were just easy fixes, low-hanging fruit that had an impact. And our subscribers stabilized or bottomed out in January 2012. And uh, since then, every year, our net subscriber numbers have gone up every single year and at increasing rates. So... That was the first point. The second part was once we stabilized and once we reduced costs enough, uh, we were able to start investing in replacing some obsolete infrastructure which caused the system to be unstable. Uh, And so the next several years were spent on replacing that obsolete infrastructure and also tackling our cost of goods. we were, a, we were a fiber island uh, in the middle of a sea with no connection to the mainland. And the only way we could buy broadband was from our competitors. And they charged a lot of money. And when I got there in 2010, we were, we were in two three-year contracts, one of which was $64 a meg a month. And the other was sixty-one twenty-five a meg a month. So even though we had this incredible infrastructure you know, the cost of the internet to run over it was was so high that we couldn't afford to use it for what? You know, we now have our own transport to both Boston and New York uh, with several redundant routes, and we we buy, as everybody else buys, as well as having Google and Akamai and others peer with Netflix peer with us in Burlington. So we have a completely different cost of goods now. Uh, and a completely different operating cost. And one of the things I find really interesting is that you didn't quite double the number of subscribers from your trough to current day, but um, you came close, and you have fewer staff now than you did when you came on. Yes, some of them would tell you they worked way too hard. (laughs) Um, But we do, we, we tried, so there are a number of things we tried to do. We didn't just want to be a a recovered local broadband, if we were going to do anything, we wanted to try and become as good as we could be and amongst the best in the US. And that meant we had to get our cost base right. 
we had to have a reason for being, which was the drive of the customer service, the, the DNA to try and be exceptional. We then embraced the bigger picture, which is economic development and U.S. Ignite. And we're in a state that young people are leaving and a city that young people are leaving. And, you know, people like me are coming more and more and we have to turn that corner. And here we have this incredible infrastructure that we're not really utilizing and that we need to spread more widely uh, to drive that economic growth. One of the things that you did at a time in which I'm, I'm sure it was difficult was you had a low income program so that uh, households that had low incomes and qualified uh, would be able to pay two, $10 a month for, I think at the time, what was an incredibly fast connection. 20, 25, Mike. Right. In which no one was doing. This is a time in which uh, Comcast, as a result of the NBC merger, had just started its 10 megabit by 1 megabit, $10 per month program. So you came in with, at the time, the most generous high-speed $10 a month program. How, how did that work, given your limited resources at the time? I think it worked very well for us. We were in the process of swapping out our GPON equipment from 25 meg symmetrical to gig symmetrical, and so... We had a lot of surplus GPON equipment there, so we could hook up a low-income family. We had the labor in-house. It, it cost us little or nothing. And this points at another major differentiator that we've, we've tried to do. Not only is customer service critical, but I think it's absolutely possible to be a really outstanding business citizen and have a profitable business. You've got to have a profitable business because, as you know, we're an infrastructure business, and if we don't make money, we can't invest in expanding the infrastructure. But I've seen no conflict at all between outstanding customer service, outstanding uh, business citizen, community citizen, and making a profit. In fact, they all work together really well. And another of our hallmarks has been to try, knowing that BT was eventually going to be sold, to try to institutionalize those values that we would hope would attract a buyer that would have similar values uh, and that would show to a broader audience that you can be a great corporate citizen and, and run a, like a private business. One question that I have, I feel like people never appreciate time in that there are people who will say Burlington Telecom's a failure, as though um, I think you would even say that it felt like a failure um, back in the 2010, 2012 time period. Um, would you describe it as a failure today? The interesting thing to me is I've been there almost eight years and I actually see more opportunity for Burlington Telecom now than at any time during those eight years. The future is very rosy. We had to go through some hard times. I do believe that the amount that was invested in the system originally would have made it hard for it to be able to continue, had some pain not be taken. Remember, uh, the city of Burlington still has $17 million invested in this that wasn't supposed to be. Citibank had to take a settlement that was meaningfully below what they lent to the city of Burlington, but what we have now is an amazing infrastructure that's highly cash flow positive, highly profitable, and has very significant growth potential. Uh, within Burlington itself, we're now at around 45% market share and growing. Uh, our addressable market, 
will grow by 30% through 2023 because we're actually out of our own cash flow building out the rest of Burlington. And we'll have that done by the end of 2018 or mid-2019. Uh, and we have plans to expand much broadly, much more widely into Chittenden County in a model that we believe can work and, and will work from that broader expansion. So really exciting times, really exciting journey and opportunity for what was once regarded as a failure and toxic. Is there anything else that, that people should know about Burlington Telecom before we, we were able to write the next chapter? It's in the fairly early chapters of a novel. It's not anywhere near the end. Its best days are in front of it. And I'm really hopeful that the values that have gotten it to where it is today and form part of its current DNA continue. We we have great customer service. We try hard to be really good uh, community citizen. And as you know, our residential broadband pricing, we have the $70 gig and we have 150 megs for $55. So we've also tried to position pricing-wise, position ourselves as being competitive as anyone in, in the U.S. Well, I think you're, you're <laughs> succeeding on that measure. Thank you for, for coming. I know a lot of people have been interested in what's happened over the years in Burlington Telecom. So I really appreciate you taking the time to give us that perspective. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. That was Christopher with Stephen Bearcloth from Burlington Telecom. Remember to review our BT coverage at mininetworks.org. We'll continue to cover this network as developments arrive. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where his handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 283 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>